You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Prophet ﷺ, I was saying, he remarks in this hadith of Sahih Muslim that I know of a stone in Mecca that would give salam to me, that would greet me before qabla an uba'ath, before I was made a prophet. And I still know that stone till today. So these were some of the precursors to the actual first revelation that the Prophet ﷺ received that prepared him for this divine revelation. Now we talked about the actual revelation and the entire experience. We talked about this at length about what that exactly was for the Prophet ﷺ and how that um, experience was and what exactly transpired. And we talked about the immediate aftermath where the Prophet ﷺ returns back home, he's completely shaken up. I also mentioned that when he left the cave of Hira, the Prophet ﷺ was very, of course, overwhelmed. He was very shocked. He was shaken up. But on top of everything else, the Prophet ﷺ says, he says the, the most severe dislike. I had the most severe dislike for soothsayers and fortune tellers and the poets that would use poetry to misguide and to deceive people, to manipulate people's emotions. And I was just so concerned about not being afflicted by anything of that nature that he says my heart was very heavy. First of all, I was very overwhelmed by why that happened. And secondly, I was just overwhelmed by the thought that will I be able to live up to this cause or not? God forbid, will I abuse this message and this new found gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? And, and I, I never want to be from those types of people who might utilize this for their own personal gains and their own personal means. So the Prophet was so heavy with this, so overwhelmed by this that Jibreel appeared to the Prophet as he was coming down the cave, as he was coming down the mountain um, from, from the mountain of Nur, the, the cave of Hira. And, he's, and then this is the first time that the Prophet ﷺ saw Jibreel ﷺ in his true, actual, physical form that Allah created him in. And I described that last time. And he told the Prophet ﷺ, "Anta Rasulullah wa ana Jibreel. You are the Messenger of God, and I am Jibreel, the Angel of God." Meaning, this the, the, what what's happened here is nothing. That is something you should be concerned or worried about. But everything that has transpired here is by the will and decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is divinely ordained. You have nothing to worry about. And he says, in a strange way, he said it was very overwhelming to see Jibreel in that form. But in a strange way, it provided a certain amount of just emotional fortitude, some strength. It lent me some strength and stabilized my heart. And the Prophet returned back, and of course we talked about the conversation with Khadija and the beautiful words, Khadija radiallahu anha, may Allah be pleased with her, what she spoke. And then of course she went to Waraqa, and then she took the Prophet to Waraqa bin Nawfal, her cousin who was a Christian you know, monk and a priest and, and a, a student of the previous scriptures. And he was, some, he was from the Hunafa. He was from those people who worshipped one God at that time of severe misguidance. In that time of darkness and ignorance. And of course when he heard what the Prophet had to say, he was blown away. He was completely blown away. One narration, it says that he started to yell um, that Quds, Quds. That this is sacred, this is sacred, this is holy, this is holy. 
And then he affirmed everything that had happened with the Prophet ﷺ. And we talked about that conversation. It said that in the narrations which mentioned that Khadija anha went to Waraqa first, and then later on she took the Prophet ﷺ. So, and then I told you that there was a third visit with Waraqa, where the Prophet ﷺ went to the Kaaba, went to Baytullah to pray. And Waraqa was there and he saw the Prophet ﷺ and he approached the Prophet ﷺ and he said that, you know, I, I will stand by your side for as long as I can. And I would support you with my full strength as much as I can. And then he kissed the forehead of the Prophet ﷺ and it said that he died a few days shortly afterwards. But in the narration that says that first Khadija went to Waraqa to at least break the ice and to let him know a little bit about what had transpired, that he said, he recited some, he, he basically recited some ash'ar. You know, he recited some poetry. Anshada shi'ran. And he said to his cousin Khadija, فَإِن يَكُوا حَقًّا يَا خَدِيجَةُ فَعْلَمِي حَدِيثَكِ إِيَّانَا فَأَحْمَدُ مُرْسَلُوا وَجِبْرِيلُ يَأْتِهِ وَمِيكَالُ مَعَهُمَا he said that, O oh Khadija, if what you say is actually the truth, then realize and understand that what you have told me about Muhammad, about Ahmad, as he refers to the Prophet ﷺ, because I, I, we had covered this way back in the early uh, discussions about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, that his mother used to prefer to call him Ahmad. And so therefore, people that were very close to the Prophet ﷺ, almost like the house name, the house loving nickname of the Prophet ﷺ was Ahmad. So he says, فَأَحْمَدُ مُرْسَلُوا Then know that Ahmad is in fact a messenger. And he says, وَجِبْرِيلُ يَأْتِيهِ وَمِيكَالُ مَعَهُمَا مِنَ اللَّهِ وَحْيٌ يَشْرَحُ الصَّدْرُ مُنْزَلُوا He says that Jibreel comes to him, the angel Gabriel comes to him. And along with him comes Mikael. He is with the both of them, with Muhammad and Jibreel. And they come from, and from Allah comes a divine revelation that opens the chest of Muhammad. يَفُوزُ بِهِ مَنْ فَازَ فِيهَا بِتَوْبَةٍ وَيَشْقَى بِهِ الْعَاتِي الْغَرِيرُ وَالْمُضَلَّلُ He says that whoever will follow him will succeed along with Muhammad's success by repenting and turning back to Allah. And the one who will oppose Muhammad, and the one that will deceive the people, and the one that will lead people astray away from Muhammad, that person will be a failure. That person is truly misfortunate. فَرِيقَانِ مِنْهُمْ فِرْقَةٌ فِي جِنَابِهِ وَأُخْرَى بِأَحْوَازِ الْجَحِيمِ تُعَلَّلُوا He says, فَرِيقَانِ مِنْهُمْ فِرْقَةٌ فِي جِنَابِهِ وَأُخْرَى بِأَحْوَازِ الْجَحِيمِ تُعَلَّلُوا He says there's two groups. One group that stands by the side of Muhammad and the other group, they will be inside of the pits of the fire of hell and they will be tortured therein. إِذَا مَا دَعَوْا بِالْوَيْلِ فِيهَا تَتَابَعَتْ مَقَامِعُ فِيهَا مَاتِهِمْ ثُمَّ تُشْعَلُوا He says that when they are called to the valleys of the fire of Jahannam and over and over again, they will be struck and they will be hit and they will be punished and then they will be burned in the fire of hell. فَسُبْحَانَ مَنْ تَهْوِي الرِّيَاحُ بِأَمْرِهِ وَمَنْ هُوَ فِي الْأَيَّامِ مَا شَاءَ يَفْعَلُوا he says that how absolutely perfect is the one that the winds blow by his command and the one that everything that happens throughout time happens solely by his command. And he says that his throne, his arsh is above the heavens and his decisions amongst his creation can never be changed. So he actually recited these poems to Khadija radiallahu anha, telling her that not to worry and that this is in fact the reality and the truth of the matter. And so we now reach the point 
where the Prophet of Allah has had these conversations with Khadija, he's had these conversations with Waraka, he's gone back home and he's in deep thought and he's reconciling everything and he's figuring everything out. Now here, there is a difference of narration if you will. The reason why the difference of narration occurs, some mention this specifically and some do not mention this. The next major stage of the life of the Prophet ﷺ is called Fatratul Wahi. Fatratul Wahi. Fatratul Wahi means the break in revelation, the pause in revelation. Some scholars of the seerah, some books of the seerah, some accounts of the prophetic biography, go from this first revelation in the immediate aftermath to the pause in revelation. Some of them say no, they actually mention a few other things that transpired shortly thereafter. So after the Prophet ﷺ has all these conversations, and he has these conversations with Waraqa, and he goes back home to, act, to now just deal with this, to come to terms with what has happened, some of the narrations mention that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ received a second revelation. Immediately thereafter, he received a second revelation. The second revelation was the first few verses, the first few ayat of Surah Al-Qalam. Surah number 68. Surah number 68. That that was the beginning of the next revelation. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet what he revealed to the Messenger was Noon. The first, the first few ayat, which basically accounts for some, some of the scholars mention only the first two ayat, some mention that are first maybe four or five verses. Noon, this is the first of the Al-Huruf Al-Muqatta'at that were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, the disjointed letters. The letters that are a miraculous part of the Qur'an that are very, um, that, are, that, that basically, you know, they, they, they alert the listener. Tambih lis-sami'een. So these letters, they alert the listener. They catch the attention of the listener. Because it's something that is very out of the ordinary. It's very unorthodox. I mean, if somebody's talking and all of a sudden, then they just stop on a letter and they say, H. You stop and you listen. And so it catches the attention of the listener. So, noon. And it caught the attention of the Prophet ﷺ. And it caught the attention of all those listening to the Prophet ﷺ. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَالْقَلَمْ He swore by the pen. وَمَا يَسْتُرُونَ And that which they will continue to write. Either the malaika or the records of history. What the people will write. What, will co- what is about to come to pass. That basically it's, it's almost like a figure of speech, a metaphor, stating that everything's about to change. Everything is about to change. If you want to hear a more in-depth analysis of this, this isn't a tafsir lecture, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go too off, uh, too deep off into the tafsir of the ayat. But I've actually done the tafsir of Surah Al-Qalam, Surah number sixty-eight, that you can find on the Bayina podcast. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Walqalami wa ma yasturun," and then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says something profound to the Prophet: "Ma anta bi ni'mati Rabbika bi majnoon." مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ That you are not, contrary to what others might think, contrary to what others are about to say, you are not, by any means, you, you are not possessed, you are not insane, you are not, um, you, you, you haven't lost your mind. 
by means of the blessing of your Lord. What this means is two things. Either that you haven't lost your mind, and that is because of the blessing of your Lord, meaning by the blessing of Allah, Allah has protected you, Allah has blessed you, and that's why you will not lose your mind, you haven't lost your mind. Or, بِنِعْمَةِ Rabbik, The ni'mah of the Lord is actually referring to the Qur'an, and the divine revelation, and the nubuwa and the risala, prophethood. That this prophethood and this nubuwa, this hasn't caused you to lose your mind. Don't worry. This hasn't caused you to lose your mind. مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ وَإِنَّ لَكَ لَا أَجْرًا غَيْرَ مَمْنُونَ and specifically reserved for you above and before anyone else. A huge reward, a never-ending reward, an eternal everlasting reward is reserved for you if you can see this through. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet the first, the one of the most effective and powerful tools of delivering and sharing and realizing this message and this mission. This, this prophetic mission and this divine message. And that was, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ That most definitely you are above a very great, noble, amazing character. That even the language of the ayah is such that imagine, imagine the heights of nobility, imagine the heights of good character. Where the peak of good character would be, that's where the character of the Prophet begins. From our human frame of reference, from our, from our social perspective, imagine what is the most amazing character you can imagine. And imagine the peak of the most amazing character you've ever seen or you could imagine. And then realize that the character of the Prophet would start from there. And Allah emphasized that, that don't ever let anything compromise your character. There will be difficult times, there will be very trying moments, there will be situations where people will really test your patience, and people will behave very, very inappropriately with you, but don't you dare ever compromise your character and your, your akhlaq, your behavior. Because that's, 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 that's who you are, and that's your resource, that's your tool. That's what you use. That's your asset. That's your, that's your medium of communication. Communicating this message is through your character. So this was the first revelation, uh, or excuse me, the second revelation upon the Prophet according to some of the accounts of the seerah. Some of the scholars of the seerah actually then state that there was a third revelation. There was a third revelation shortly thereafter to provide the Prophet some type of an outlet some type of recourse, some way to cope with what was going on with the Prophet ﷺ, that there was a third revelation. And that was Surah number 73. Ya The older one sitting there wrapped up in a blanket. What that means is, what are you doing sitting there wrapped up in a blanket? What are you doing just sitting there wrapped up and just think, like, what are you waiting for? Stand up and pray throughout the night, except for a little while. Nisfahu, half the night. Or maybe a little bit less than that, maybe a third of the night. Or pray more than that. And continue to recite this beautiful, wonderful gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala properly within that prayer. We will continue to send down this very heavy word upon you. And this conversing with Allah at night 
This exercise, the spiritual exercise of the night, this will give you firm feet and will give you the ability to say what you need to say. Will allow you to speak properly. Inna laka nahari sabhan tawila. And you got a very long swim ahead of you during the day. And again, if, if we take these narrations, the purpose of revealing that to the Prophet ﷺ was to emphasize to him that have that good akhlaq and have that good character, but realize this, that you'll only be as strong, as solid as your prayer during the night is. That this is where you'll come back to recharge. This is where you'll charge your batteries. This is what will keep you going. You're gonna need this. And if you actually in detail read the tone of these ayat, and you understand the message of this ayah, it's actually very interesting. It's very unexpected. Because Allah is telling the Prophet to stand up and pray in long hours throughout the night, which is very exhausting. Instead of telling him to rest or take it easy or recover, he's telling him to pray long hours in the night. He's telling him that I'm gonna send down a very heavy word upon you. He's telling him you got a long mission and a job ahead of you, which can be very overwhelming, which could be very frightening. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's version of real talk with the Prophet He's letting him know, listen, you got a lot on your plate. You got a lot more on your plate than you recognize. Your weight on your shoulders is a lot huge, a lot bigger than what you've understood. And the reason why it's important for you to understand and realize that, that take this opportunity to connect with Allah. Take this opportunity to converse with Allah. Take this opportunity to recharge your spiritual batteries very seriously. Avail this opportunity. Make the most of this. Don't sleep on the prayer during the night. Literally. Right? Don't sleep on the prayer during the night. Because otherwise there's no other place where you'll get the charge, you'll get the, the, the energy, you'll get the, the boost that you need in order to do your job. Now, these are some of the narrations that are mentioned. That the surah, surah number 68 was revealed. Some also mentioned that the first part of surah number 73 was revealed. And then unanimously, we have the fact that the Prophet of Allah then went through, he experienced what is called Fatratul Wahi. What is Fatratul Wahi? Fatratul Wahi, as I explained before, means a pause in revelation. A pause in revelation. The, the, the duration of the positive revelation is not explicitly mentioned in the books of hadith. Not directly explicitly mentioned from the Prophet ﷺ, nor from the people around him. Different scholars have, some scholars I should rather say, have assessed certain, you know, frames of time. They, they have basically tried to conclude how long the pause in revelation was based off of maybe some of the ayat or some of the revelation or some of the other things. Some scholars have stated times or durations as large as, as long as three years. Some have said it was as short as maybe a few nights, a few days. Some have said it was a few weeks probably in between. Wallahu ta'ala a'lamu bisawab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. There's real, even the scholars who have mentioned these, these durations of time, they themselves explicitly clearly state, there's no solid confirmed way to be able to conclude what the time frame was exactly. A lot of times the very basic popular books of seerah that are written, they sometimes have a time duration stated therein, so maybe you're familiar with some reference of time, but those are just written very basically, very simply, so that's why it won't give you this side detail, this fact, that there's no real way to conclude how long that time duration was, but that is the fact of the matter. And so some scholars say that 
Allah actually knows best, but it seems to be the opinion of a good majority of the scholars who have delved and discussed the life and the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, Ibn Kathir being amongst them, that the duration was probably somewhat closer to being about a few weeks worth of time. And again, Allah knows best. Now, Revelation paused. Why would it pause? What exactly happened? Well, obviously, again, the scholars explained, it was to give the Prophet ﷺ a certain amount of time to acclimate to this experience. To let it soak in, just a little bit. To let him kind of gain some level of comfort with what had just happened, what had just transpired. And secondly, once he became comfortable with what happened, to also let him start to develop a certain amount of longing, if you will. A certain amount of anticipation. You know they say you wanna keep him, you wanna keep him a little thirsty? You want to keep them coming back for more? Whereas, of course, we have the utmost respect when we speak about the Messenger of Allah But see, one thing that the scholars explain is that receiving divine revelation is something we can't even imagine what that's like. We have no frame of reference. I mean, how do, I, how do we understand that? We can't. I mean, getting squeezed by an angel, what's that like? There's no way we could realize that. Having the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly pierce into your heart from above the seven heavens. What is that like? We wouldn't know. So we have no idea how overwhelming and even traumatic of an experience this was. How overwhelming of an experience it really must have been. That it must have taken him a few days to just recover. He probably had to sleep it off a little bit, had to just relax, just needed to think. And after that initial feeling subsided, or that overwhelming, he got over some of the initial shock of that experience, then the Prophet ﷺ started to long for that. Because at the end of the day, it's the word of Allah, it's the kalam of Allah. He fully believed, he had no doubt that he had been, Allah had spoken to him. He'd received the kalam of Allah and he was made a messenger of Allah. And so once a, a few more extra days went by, the anxiety settled in. What if Allah is upset with me? What if Allah is angry with me? What if I've displeased Allah? What if I haven't lived up to expectations? When will I receive divine revelation? Will I receive divine revelation again? And they started becoming more and more anxious, more and more nervous, more and more worried. And in this state of confusion and nerves and anxiety, Severe anxiety. Again, because we can't even imagine what that must have been like. It's said in the narrations, and this is mentioned in very popular, even basic common books of Sirah, that the Prophet ﷺ went on, went, was left his home with the intention to climb up the mountain. And the narration states that he would if Allah was upset with him, if Allah was angry with him, he would throw himself from the mountain. Now here, I took pretty much the last entire week to just comprehend and understand this. To understand what that exactly means, because that could be misunderstood or misinterpreted by someone. Did the Prophet want to kill himself? Of course not. Of course not. And so I consulted with some senior scholars. I even spoke to a um, Muslim psychologist. He's a professor of psychology. 
who, mashallah, has also studied Islam and Quran and Sirah and Sunnah. I even spoke to him. And first and foremost, there is always the possibility that this is almost like a figure of speech, it's an expression. That saying to climb up to the mountains and throw yourself from the mountain is like an expression of saying, like go and screaming from the rooftop. Screaming from the rooftop. Why, why, why are you upset with me, Allah? That's of course one way that it can be understood. And secondly, even if it's taken literally, there's something we have to understand. Expressions of emotion, emotional expressions, are very subjective to time and society and culture. Certain expressions of emotion that are acceptable today were deemed unacceptable a couple of hundred years ago. And typically speaking, if you, the, the psychologist was actually sharing this with me, that if you look at ancient societies like the Arab society of a millennia and a half ago, if you look at these types of societies, they were actually very comfortable with very powerful emotional expressions. They're very comfortable with very extremely powerful emotional expressions. They were very comfortable with this. Like if somebody had a tragedy or somebody had something tragic happen in their home, one of the ways that they would express this is that they would literally come into a public area, like in Mecca, they would come into the haram and he would rip his shirt off and he would yell and he would scream and he would pull his hair. I imagine if somebody did that right now. Right? I mean, we, we'd, we'd assess that as some type of a psychological emotional disorder. But it's our equivalent of somebody going and pulling the fire alarm, you know, alerting everyone that there's an emergency. But so people were a lot more comfortable with these types of powerful expressions of emotion. That's one thing. Secondly, we also have to understand that there are certain things that some studies of science or the social sciences or psychology even, that there are some things within the Islamic mindset, the Islamic frame of mind, the Islamic worldview that just, they won't be, we, they will never be reconciled with modern frames of scientific reference. Because they're coming at it from a completely a-religious, a-spiritual perspective. And there's something they just won't comprehend. This, this professor of psychology, he actually explained to me, he told me that when he started his PhD, when he started his graduate studies in psychology, this is a graduate student, basically like an assistant to a professor, he's a teaching assistant at a major university, and he's a PhD candidate in psychology. So he said that they had these basic psychological evaluations, these basic tests that they make people take that are basic psychological evaluations. And they were gonna be doing a whole study on these and they were gonna you know, get a room full of like maybe like a, a group of people that would be a case test, right? It would be a case study, a test study, and they would give these psychological evaluations to people and then they would interview them and then they would analyze and et cetera, et cetera. So he said, before I actually started analyzing and studying the actual psychological test and exam, the questionnaire, he says I decided to take it for myself just to kind of get a feel for it. Our professor recommended, take it yourself. So he said one of the first questions was, do you think about death? And this is a practicing Muslim. So as a practicing Muslim, what's your answer? Do you think about death? Everybody? Absolutely. The Prophet says, frequently remember death. So he says, the question was, do you remember death? I said, yep. I'm a Muslim, of course I do. So when the next, uh, one of the following questions was, do you feel like you're not in control of your life? That's like Iman 101, right? Al-Qadr wal-Qadha, right? Do you feel like you're not in control, like somebody else or something else is in control of your life? Yes, absolutely. Shalwa la ilaha illallah. 
right? So he said, absolutely, and I checked it, yes. So he said, when the evaluation was done and my professor actually looked at it, he goes, you know, you, you basically come, you, you know, you would, based on this questionnaire, you would be diagnosed as being depressed. You have a, you have, you have a form of depression. And he's like, no, I'm not, <laughs> right? And, my, and he says, the professor said, yeah, you're not. And this is a, he said it's a tenured professor, head of the Department of Psychology at a major university. And he's like, no, you're not. And he's like, yeah, I know I'm not. But this test says that you're depressed. Why? He said primarily because of these two questions. And he says, I explained to him, do you think about death? Well, it's a part of our spiritual exercise. We do think about death. Do you feel like you're not in control of your life? It's a part of our spiritual belief system. It's a part of our creed, our belief system that we believe that God is in control of everything. Allah is in control of everything. We're not. And so there are certain things that aren't easily reconciled like this. So that's another thing you also, we, we also have to kind of understand when it said something like this about the Prophet ﷺ, going to go on to the top of the mountain and fling himself from the mountain. I mean, you have to kind of understand the spiritual condition. That he's, he's willing to do anything to please his Lord. He's willing to do anything to please his Lord. And he gave me other examples. He said sometimes, just sometimes a very basic, you know, um, a simplistic approach to psychology and things like that is very, um, he said it's almost like out of context, looking at something out of context. He explained to me that if you were to say that somebody ran into a burning building, somebody head first voluntarily ran into a burning building, that person is suicidal. But then if you complete the sentence and you understand, you, you, look at the, you take a step back and look at the big picture, he's a firefighter and there's a baby inside the building and he went inside to save the baby. Now all of a sudden, he's not suicidal. In fact, he is selfless. He's a hero. He's admirable. He's amazing. Somebody we look up to. So similarly, you have to understand the full, the full scope. You have to understand the big picture here. So the Prophet of Allah would go up to this mountain out of that anxiety, that concern of Allah's displeasure. And Jibreel would appear to the Prophet and he would say, Anta Rasulullahi haqqan. Innaka la Rasulullahi haqqan. You most definitely are the Messenger of Allah, and this is the truth. You truly are the Messenger of Allah, I have no doubt about that. And he would say it would again calm the nerves of the Prophet and he would come back down. And so this. Number of days, Allah knows best ex exactly how many they were. They passed until finally the Prophet ﷺ says, he was walking through the marketplace in Mecca. And he heard a sound from above him. And he looked up and he says, I saw Jibreel. This is the second time, the second of the two times, that the Prophet ﷺ saw Jibreel ﷺ in his true, actual, physical form. And he said it was even more overwhelming than the first time. And he said, in fact, Jibreel ﷺ was sitting on a chair, like sitting on a throne, like a chair. And he said he was huge, just like before. And it was overwhelming, he was just sitting there. And he called my attention, I looked up at him. He says, I was completely shaken up to my core. And the Prophet says, I was so shaken up that I needed to kind of regain my composure. So he says, I felt like I couldn't walk. So he says, I sat down exactly where I was. I just sat down for a little while. I took a breath, regained some of my strength and my composure. And I picked myself up and I went home.
I was shaking. I said, Dathiruni, Dathiruni. Wrap me up in a shawl and a blanket. And his beloved wife Khadija radiallahu anha wrapped him up in a blanket. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to him divine revelation. Ya ayyuhal muddathir. What are you doing sitting there wrapped up in a blanket? That's not what you were meant for. That's not what you were meant to do. What are you doing sitting there wrapped up in a blanket? You're meant for greatness. Qum, stand up. And do what? Fa'anzir. Go and warn. It's a little bit of a linguistic nuance. Like I said, I don't want to turn this into a tafsir lecture, but students of the Arabic language can tell you that fa'anzir, this verb, and warn, it requires an object. Yata'adda ila maf'ul. It requires an object, it requires a victim, an object. But that object, that maf'ul, is not provided. It's mahdhuf. It is intentionally omitted. When it is intentionally omitted in this manner, in this form, the purpose of it is, is to open the spectrum, customize the message, open it up, go and warn. Meaning, warn everyone. Meaning, warn anyone who will listen, who will heed, who will pay attention. Go and warn. فَأَنذِر Let there be no end to this message and to this mission. You go as far as you have to. You go, you work as hard as you got to. You sacrifice whatever it takes. But you warn. And of course that message of warning as well, in dhar, in the Arabic language, warn isn't a perfect translation into English. In dhar means to warn someone of some imminent danger out of love and concern for that person. So if like your brother, somebody you deeply care about is walking down a path and there's a big ditch coming up and you say, well, watch out, watch out, watch out, don't fall in the ditch. You do that because you care about them and you don't want them to get hurt. That's in dhar. Go and warn. Care about people. Warn people. Alert people of the danger that awaits them. فَأَنذِرْ وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ Proclaim the greatness only of your Lord and your Master. وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرْ And your clothes, purify them. وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرْ Purify yourself. And this is both, it has a literal and a figurative meaning. Literally purify yourself, clean yourself, but also figuratively, that make sure that you appear and you present yourself in the best of fashions, in the best of manner. That this message does not give you license to be filthy on the outside. But you have to make your outside live up to the standard of this message internally. وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرٌ And leave all types of bad, evil, disgusting, repel- repulsive things, leave them. Leave them completely. And this was the first revelation to the Prophet ﷺ after the pause, after the break in revelation. And this is what mobilized the Messenger ﷺ. And from this point on, the Prophet was a man on a mission. There's nothing that could stop him. And inshallah, in the next uh, session, we'll talk about how the Prophet set out on that mission and what were some of the very first, who were some of the first people who, to whom the Prophet preached this message and also who were some of the first people who responded to this message. The last thing I'd like to comment on here before I close up uh, the session for this week is that 
There are some accounts of the seerah which mention that the first revelation after the pause in revelation, the first revelation after the pause in revelation was wadduha, walayli idha saja, talking about the brightness of morning and the night when it completely takes over, and that's that. That's analogous to receiving revelation after not receiving revelation. Walayli idha saja, ma wadda'aka rabbuka wa maqala. Your Lord has not abandoned you, nor is He upset with you. Your Lord has not abandoned you, nor is He upset. So based off of that, they say that this was what happened. This was the first revelation. However, that is not the uh, that that is not what the authentic narration tells us. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, actually discusses all the revelations and compiles them together. That from the Sahih Muslim, in fact, in Bukhari and Muslim, we find that the Surah Wadduha, this surah, was revealed when the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, shortly thereafter, not too long thereafter, still in the very, in the beginning, maybe duration of the prophethood, there was there was another pause of a few nights that actually mentions two or three nights, and that was actually the Prophet sallallahu became very ill and became very sick for about two three days. That sometime after the revelation, the prophethood started. His mission began, he became very sick and very ill for about two to three nights, to the point where he was in bed. And during those two, three nights, he didn't receive revelation. He was very sick, very ill, he was bedridden and he didn't receive revelation. And at that point in time, some of the mushrikun of Makkah, one generation says that a mushrika, one of the uh, idol-worshipping women in Makkah, she actually came to the Prophet saw him in this condition, and then she mocked, made fun of the Prophet One generation says that she says, looks like that your buddy, meaning referring to Allah, sarcastically, she said that your buddy looks like is, is upset with you, he's abandoned you. And that some people in, that knew that the Prophet wasn't feeling well, they started to say, oh, looks like his Lord has abandoned him. And one other narration says that she actually, billah, that she actually referred, by, she mocked the Prophet by saying that your shaitan, your devil has abandoned you. He doesn't talk, your devil, your shaitan doesn't talk to you anymore. And she mocked the Prophet this way. And it was very hurtful to say something like that. And to hear that. And so in response to that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَالضُّحَا وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا سَجَا مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَا Don't pay attention to these fools. Your Lord has not abandoned you, nor is He upset in the least bit. So that's just a clarification of a mix-up of certain narrations that certain basic books of Sirah basically make. And like I said, from here on out, the Prophet was, the, was a man on a mission. And we'll talk exactly about how he carried on with his mission initially and what were some of the first interactions and some of the first responses that he received to his preaching and the teaching of his message. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all... Um, the full understanding of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make his life and his precedent and his example a guiding light for us in this life and also in the life of the hereafter. Wa jazakumullah khairun. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.